Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hello everyone, welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. It's always nice when you can join us, especially the fact that we're 24-7. It tickles us that Six years later, here we are with an incredible roster of guests and activities and programs that have just spanned the world. So thanks to all of you for making that possible for us. We deeply appreciate you. We're looking at um, a wonderful practice called yoga. (laughs) Many of us have tried it. Some of us think that we're not able to accomplish it at all. But in America, it is rising so high, it's not even funny. Just in 2016 alone, the number of yoga practitioners that have been at least counted on so far has been over 36 million folks, and it's been really widespread. I did a program in Capitol Hill a few years ago, and I had no idea there were about 112 different yogic practices available in the United States alone, and I bet many of you didn't even know that. And they're the top five places that yoga gets practiced. There's definitely one at home, maybe at a gym, at a health club, but also in a yoga studio, community centers, and even in the parks. It's doing a lot of good for people, and people are feeling really, really much much stronger, better, clearer, more effective in their lives. Today, I'm really happy to welcome back an old friend of ours of the American Meditating Radio, Sean Curran. Sean is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher and public speaker. She's known for her social activism, impassioned style of teaching, and raw, honest, and inspired self-expression. And over her 25-year teaching career, Sean has created many instructional DVDs, including her groundbreaking series, The Yoga of Awakening, which sounds true. Featured on over 40 magazine covers and countless media outlets, Sean has chosen to use her platform to bring awareness to global issues, including social justice, sex trafficking, HIV AIDS awareness, generational poverty, and animal rights. But listen, in 2005, she was named National Yoga Ambassador for Youth AIDS, and in 2013, she received both the Global Global Green International Environmental Leadership Award and the Humanitarian Award by the Smithsonian Institute. See what yoga can do, folks? In 2017, she has been training leaders of activism through her co-founded organization, Off the Mat, into the world. Sean also co-founded the Global Seva Challenge, which has raised over $3.5 million by activating communities of yoga and wellness in fund and awareness raising efforts. Isn't that fantastic, ladies and gentlemen? Hmm. Today we're going to talk to her about her new book, and it's entitled... Revolution of the Soul, Awakened to Love Through the Raw Truth, Radical Healing and Conscious Action. Welcome, the amazing Sean Corn. Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Sister Jenna. <laughs> it's so nice to hear your voice again. 
same here. You're always so busy. I love that. I love that, you know, it's so rare that we find something that we really love to do, and it changes the world, it makes money, and it saves lives. So congratulations to that. Thank um, you I very, talk- very much. <laughs> You're welcome. I want to talk about the tour promoting your new book. How many centers, um, cities have you visited so far, and how many more do you have planned? Well, actually, I just finished my tour. Um, this, at least this this m- more intense part of the tour, it was 30 Great. cities in 42 days. Wow, how'd you survive that? <laughs> Barely. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had no one to blame but myself because it's a schedule that I chose, and it was barely sustainable, um, but it was fun. And just the logistics were tough, but the experience itself was blessed, and I was happy. Um, But, man, it was not easy. I bet not. Was there a specific experience that stood out for you doing the tour? There's so many. I mean, it's low-hanging fruit for me to be in a yoga studio. These are my... These are my students. These are the people that I speak to. And I really wanted to get out of the yoga school and bring the message of inside-out transformational change into a more mainstream environment. So I chose to not teach yoga but just speak in bookstores, event centers, churches. And that was surprisingly um, amazing. I learned some really good skills. but I found it challenging at times. I learned that Although being a teacher, you're naturally set the center of attention, but when you're creating embodied experiences, you very quickly deflect the attention off of yourself onto other things, other people, ideologies, beliefs, and it feels more equal and less mm-hmm. egocentric, whereas writing a book and being on stage and talking about me, the book, my process, the attention was solely on me, and it was really uncomfortable. Like I had a hard time n- navigating how to be in my body and just receive, whether it was good feedback or negative feedback or anything. That was challenging, mm. but I, I, I figured it out. But at first, I, I didn't anticipate that. Mm, I know that can feel sometimes uncomfortable. But didn't you find that as you went, like it, middle way and as you're getting to the end that you felt more like you were being an instrument because I know that for me at the beginning it felt different where all my insecurities were coming up but mm-hmm. then along the way you really started to feel like you were just being used I, I, I'm a channel I'm being used I am an instrument and it started to become a real joy and a humbling experience to know that my voice had mattered did you remember having that moment at some point I would have to say, actually, yes. It reminded me very much of when I first became a yoga teacher. There's just skills that you have to develop, um, just like any technique. You develop a technique so you can throw it away, and once you throw it away, then it becomes art. You can actually begin to channel, and it's fluid, spontaneous. And I kept reminding myself in the beginning of my tour that I'm just learning new skills, and once I figure out the arc then I can let go of some of those skills and just be more present. And once that happened, and it, it took it took a couple of weeks, but once that happened, definitely I felt more um, connected to the content and to the audience yeah. and less, um, it felt less about me and more about um, being in service to the message itself. 
I love that. For some of our listeners who are getting to know more about you, I know it's been over 25 years that you've been practicing yoga, and you have become one of the most prominent yoga teachers in America in particular. Could you share how you actually got interested in yoga and maybe touch a little bit on maybe the mystical aspects of yoga that kind of percolated your curiosity? Sure, of course. I got actually got into yoga when I was around 18 years old. I'm 53 now, so it's been a long time. And mm-hmm. it happened, oh, God, it's like the fates of the universe inter- interfering, if you will, and helping me to move from one direction to another. But I moved away from home. I moved to New York City. And at that time, I was working in nightclubs. I was partying a lot. But I also had a job at a place called Life Cafe in uh, in New York's East Village that was owned by a man named David Life and who would later on um, open up the Jiva Mukti schools of yoga, uh, him and mm-hmm. his partner Sharon Gannon, who was also a waitress at the restaurant. Yeah. And so I, mm-hmm. I started to learn about the principles of yoga before I even got on a mat. David and Sharon just would talk about things like animal rights and justice and um, compassion. And David would often challenge me with some of the decisions that I was making and reflect back to me alternatives. It wasn't until years later that I realized how deeply I was being schooled in yoga prior to stepping Mm. on a mat. I got on a mat at Integral Yoga in New York City probably a couple years later where I actually did physical yoga. And it was not a pretty experience for me. I mean, I was, my body was still like just, it was filled with just toxins. And so I, I threw up the very first time I ever did a yoga class. And it was not spiritual. I was not raised with any religion. I, was an, um, I would have been a self-proclaimed atheist. And I really resisted any message of spirituality because in the environment in which I was raised, not my family, but my school, my friends, God was something that was outside of ourselves. It was very patriarchal, and it seemed to show up only when you messed up. And I was Mm. messing up all the time. And so I, I really rejected this idea of a God. And so when I would hear teachers talking about the spiritual aspect, I would just zone out. And I would say I practiced for about five years, purely physical, just getting stronger and more flexible. And then Mm -hmm. one day in a yoga class, I had this real emotional breakthrough, and that shifted everything. And I don't Mm -hmm. look back at the earliest stages of my practice as being somehow flawed or insignificant, but I needed five years of hardcore asana to break down the layers of tension and self-protection that was wrapped around my body that that I was addicted to because it kept me feeling safe. Yoga breaks down the the tension, and it can be a really scary experience for a lot of people. So it took me a long time for my nervous system to get prepared because once that tension finally released and once I felt safe enough for the emotions that were in my body to, to erupt, that was the first time I started to connect to a higher power, if you will, or to an essence beyond my smaller self. It's the first time I experienced surrender. And what I would learn later on in my yoga practice is that it's surrender is the, is the aspect 
or the quality of our being that will open us to grace. And so my mystical practices really began probably around eight years after I first got on the mat, and that would have been in my um, more towards my late 20s. Mm, wow, that is such a beautiful expression, Sean, because a lot of us don't really feel like you go through some of those stages in yogic practice. In America, we think of it really just a physical practice, but it really can take you to a higher expression of yourself. And, you know, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he had declared um, International Day of Yoga, I think that's one on June 21st. Mm-hmm. And yep. can I tell you how much that has moved me? And I don't know, have you felt something very profound about a world leader stepping up on the stage at the UN and inviting the world to practice yoga, to actually see the value and the power of what this practice can actually do, not only for your life, but for the world? Was there ever something that kind of went, yes, I, you know, finally they're recognizing the power of this practice and not making it be some little woo-woo thing? So many times. I was actually at U- mm-hmm. the UN on International Yoga Day, and it was profound for me yes. to to see not just, uh, I mean, there's so many leaders now coming forward and recognizing the importance of wellness, spiritual, physiological, mental wellness, and looking at it more holistically and recognizing that there are tools that can help us to open to the planet, to each other, to ourselves in love. And that was a pretty extraordinary moment. It it still is. Each year I feel more and more grateful um, Mm -hmm. when I I look at all the the, um, Instagram posts and the social media acknowledgments of International Yoga Day and to know that it is part of the mainstream and that our leadership is recognizing its importance. I know. I, I keep looking back at a moment like that where imagine if world leaders really started to stand up and speak with this truth as well as running a country, like to talk about yoga and meditation and the importance of inner well-being and, you know, make sanctions and, you know, do your work. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you we wouldn't be in the, in the mess that we're in today. Well, well actually, um, I Congress- wanted. Congressman Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan, yes. who unfortunately just dropped out of the race today for president, he's written a book I think called A Mindful Nation, and he is an avid meditator and brings meditation into Congress and talks about its benefits uh, yes. often. So he's a perfect example. Yes. He is a perfect example. We were at the America Meditates um, Health Mental Health Awareness Summit in Denver just just recently, and he continues to be a voice of really bringing our attention to the importance of meditation, yoga, and mindfulness. So talking Mm -hmm. about that, let's talk about your book. Um, It's no longer really that new anymore, but yes, it's new. (laughs) It's your your Mm -hmm. book, Um, Revolution of the Soul. Talk about the meaning of the title. How did you come up with that? Well, because of the idea that the the evolution is the revolution, the work that we do on Mm. ourselves is the very thing that's going to move our world towards peace. The practice of yoga teaches us that everything is connected, that there is no separation. And so we're being asked as yogis to look towards the fractures and see the ways in which we can heal them. And But the thing is, the fractures that exist are set up in our systems, and it includes racial injustice. It includes um, 
environmental injustice. Um, it includes it includes uh, indigenous sovereignty, um, politics, mm-hmm. animal rights, and anywhere, any place that inf- affects the health, wellness, goodwill of our citizens and this planet, where there is a um, where there is separation, yoga invites mm-hmm. us to go towards it and heal it. The problem is we can't dismantle the systems that exist that create oppression until we look at the systems within ourselves and look at all the ways in which we actually benefit from that separation or are complicit to that separation or participate in it, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so the book really unpacks and explores the narratives we tell ourselves are true, how those narratives live within our body, how the philosophy of this practice um, can help us to understand our impulses and the choices that we make and how we can reframe these experiences through a mystical perception. But then it takes it one step further, and it, it invites us to look at the now what meaning now that we're Mm -hmm. happier and healthier, how do we actually heal these fractures and go out into the world and be in service? But we also have to look at the shadow of that because for a lot of us, sometimes even with the best of intentions, the impact that we have can be really creating more harm. So we have to look at this idea of of the shadow of service being saviorism, perpetuating dominance, and on and on. And so I break down what conscious action looks like and the mm-hmm. challenges that exist and how we have to normalize these very uncomfortable conversations and take accountability for our actions in order to create true social change. And mm. so the book cover the first part of the book is the evolution of the soul. That's really our our own personal journey. The second part is the revolution of the soul and that's how do we take this out into the world. Wow, that's very powerful. And evolution is important especially at this time when it looks like Everyone is just getting, I don't know, so distanced from really truth, the true sense of self. When you look at how we are behaving as a society and a culture, in what way can the book really begin to, I mean, you know, offer some tools, especially the part that you talk about awakening to love, where I feel like that is such an important requirement right now. How would you explain awakening to us now so that we can actually be opened to the awakening of love? Well, there's 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 two ways I approach that. The first thing mm-hmm. when I talk about awakening to love, what I see people doing on a spiritual on their spiritual path is that they're seeking a relationship with God or a higher power or creative consciousness. And my feeling is is that a relationship with God is not something something to seek because that would suggest that it's outside of ourselves, that a relationship with spirit is something that we awaken to because it already exists within, and that's, that's love, uh, consciousness. But the only thing that blocks us from the totality of that awareness is trauma. It's limited beliefs. It's socialization, education, even religion. And so the second thing I would say is that right now, our world, our especially our nation, is in trauma. And mm-hmm. it's important to understand how trauma works in regards to the mind-body connection and the influence that trauma has on our perception as an energy. And if we can confront the trauma in our bodies, discharge that energy, 
and be willing to, again, see that bigger spiritual picture, it helps us to develop empathy so that when we can look outside of ourselves and recognize that what's getting excavated is all this unearthed trauma, that, of course, if we don't have tools to deal with that trauma, we will meet hate with hate and fear with fear. And the cycle of that oppression just continues. So at some point, we have to understand how insidious trauma is and the impact that it has on our health and wellness. And the book explores not just personal trauma, but ancestral, cultural, generational trauma and the impact that has on our experience in the world. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Wow, that's powerful. And we need that. We need some sort of awakening and understanding of how we can charter through this trauma that we're mm-hmm. going through as a country because we're not used to it. Um, you've been no. a longtime activist for social and political change. You've worked with sexually exploited children. You championed for youth AIDS and, and so much more. What continues to inspire your deep passion for service, what we always called SEVA? I, I, I think the older that I get is the realization of the privileges that I have in this particular body that I have access to spiritual, educational, and community resources and financial resources that most people in the world don't. I'm aware that even a conversation like you and I are having where we're talking mm-hmm. about God and love and trauma, this is a, it's a spiritual luxury that we can drop in in this way fearlessly where most people in the world, because of systemic religious political oppression, could get killed or put in jail having this kind of spiritual democracy. So what I often think about is how dare I not do whatever I can in the short amount of time that I'm in this body because I can do the inner work that's necessary so that perhaps I can help to alleviate some of this suffering so that others in the world can have an opportunity to be able to have the freedoms that I take for granted daily. I don't Beautiful. I just don't take for granted these these opportunities, these spiritual opportunities. And it's what motivates me. I would be I would feel ashamed of myself, if you will, if I got passive because it's my privilege that allows that passivity. It's my mm-hmm. privilege that allows me to kind of like fall into my you know, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, you know, like, what can I do? Complacency, I can't, yes. Yeah, yes. I can't help but just recognize the suffering that exists and the knowing, as yoga tells us, is that our liberation is bound and that we can't be free unless we're all free. Therefore, I have a responsibility to use my platform, to use my authority, to use my privileges in a way that raises awareness and eases the suffering of others. And that's what keeps Mm. me motivated. You know, we have a a presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, who's into meditation, yoga, and spirituality, and she's been getting a real hard time from the media. They say that people who are spiritual shouldn't be in the political field. I mean, what is she doing in there? So sometimes do you find that activism, which tends to be a very outward push in yoga, is there a balance, or do you find that they go against each other? Is there a separation between the two? No. I mean, I've been hearing this for years and years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but like I said before, yoga is social justice. It's racial justice. It's immigration justice. It is indigenous sovereignty. It's animal rights. It's politics. If we believe in 
I mean, like I just said, that I can't be free unless we're all free. Therefore, right. if the, pro- the practice of yoga is leading to samadhi, which is liberation, which is enlightenment, which is the ultimate freedom, that if that's my quest on this path, then I have a responsibility to make sure that all souls around me are also free. It, re- it means holding our leaders accountable. It means transforming policy. It means voting. It means being accountable. It means to engage because to not engage means that I participate in that very separation, that very oppression. And, again, that's not yoga. So I, mm-hmm. leaders like Marianne, leaders like Tim, I value their voice, their participation, and I honor their, their, their recognition of the necessity to bring those two worlds together. Very different than bringing mm-hmm. religion in, which can often be dogmatic. Spirituality exactly. is truth and love. And it recognizes that that love and truth that's within me is within you and that we have to put humanity above anything else, including greed and economics. And I've received that pushback for years. What I also understand is that as a teacher, you have to meet your students where they're at. If I came into a a very basic class where it's all brand-new students and I'm, like, downloading all this stuff around politics and social change, they're lost. Like, I know that in that moment, all they can handle is maybe downward dog. And, but in time, if they stay with that downward dog and they breathe into that downward dog and the tension starts to release and their hearts open and their minds get more activated, then when I plant that same seed, it speaks to something in their soul that already knows. The resistance has moved into surrender. And so mm-hmm. you have to. I think as a teacher, you have to be strategic about where you meet your students, yet challenge them without overwhelming. And so there's a pathway. But for the teachers who are out there who are more experienced, to, right. to deny the connection, I think those teachers are just getting, they're getting complacent and lazy. And I would challenge them, like, nope, it's time to step up your game. Your students Absolutely. want to hear this. Absolutely, and I find that people are a lot more uh, open to also finding and listening to techniques that can help them to move forward. People want to move forward. I don't think we always want to stay stuck in the old paradigm, and we can see just looking at the news, they're breaking down whether you want to accept it or not, however ugly it might be, uh, but it is breaking down and something new is coming. Off the mat, the organization that you had co-founded had created a program called Yoga Votes, And it was fostering dialogue and citizen engagement to, I guess, emphasize the power of one's vote. You want to elaborate a little bit on Yoga Votes? Yeah, Yoga Votes was an opportunity for us inside the community to talk about. We we couldn't tell people who to vote for because of our, um, our nonprofit status. But what we could do was encourage people to vote, help them to understand the power of their vote and what it means to be a part of a constituency and also give them some insight into what the different candidates believed in and connect it back to some of the over the values mm-hmm. within our community that are shared. You know, I don't want to assume that all people who practice yoga are progressive liberals. You know, the beauty of yoga mm-hmm. is that it speaks to all bodies, all souls, all perspectives. But there are certain shared values that we have within the philosophy And so it was a matter of educating people and letting them know, like, well, this candidate believes in this. This is what they've said. Here, this candidate 
believes in this. This is what they've said. Now you make your choice. And that was really our big toe like in the water to see how people were going to respond to making that connection between yoga and politics. And this was back when Obama was first running. I think that was 2006 maybe. I, I can't remember. And we also went to the DNC, and then we went to the, the RNC, and we worked with Ariane Huffington to create what was called the Huffington Oasis, where we worked with the delegates and provided tools for integration because it's such a heated environment, and it's so yeah. it can be really aggressive. We wanted to show that there are tools that can bring more balance into these really intense conversations and maybe even perhaps more mindfulness. And that mm-hmm. was very powerful. And we continue to try to organize the community around around the importance of it. The beauty is, um, to your point, there has been a, a shift. When Trump was elected a couple of two and a half years ago, almost no, almost three years ago now. Prior to that, the it was hard to get people on board. I heard a lot more pushback after he was elected. It was literally the next morning where my inbox was flooded with people in the community saying that they were outraged, that they were overwhelmed, they were scared. And what they kept saying was, what can I do to make a difference? What can I do to turn this around? And that, that was a shift because very often what I was hearing was, here's what you should do, Sean, but very little about what, what should I do, them, you know, the, the, the people responding to me. Suddenly people wanted skills. They wanted information. They wanted to know how they can step into leadership. They recognized it was an all-hands-on-deck moment. And after that, I got challenged, like, to step up my game, to get more education, Mm -hmm. to learn more about social justice and equity, to fine-tune my own language around marginalized communities. It happened so fast where I felt like the communities of yoga, just something shifted, and they were like, oh, no. We have to get involved, and we have to do this with intelligence and compassion. And off the mat, our leadership trainings expanded. Our faculty expanded. We were able to bring in more people, um, teachers on the margins, and improve our skills. And watching the leadership in the community expand as a result in the last three years gives me incredible Mm -hmm. hope. What are your plans for 2020? It's definitely going to be a very charged political time. Oh, God, it's my hope is that we can organize the yoga teachers throughout the country, especially the ones that are in states um, Mm -hmm. that lean um, um, less progressively um, or that are more, you know, pink, if you will, you know, like kind of sitting in the middle and inviting uh, yoga schools to help students to register to vote to get teachers to be willing to talk about what um, inside-out leadership looks like, to get more educated on the policies, and to be vocal uh, about the importance of this next election and that every vote counts and that there's a level of divisiveness that is becoming so normalized that we cannot allow our fatigue to, to make us withdraw from using our own voice to call out injustice, that we must get more and more engaged than ever before. That's how important this next election is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean, for doing that, because it's going to be really, really vital with the way that 
the narrative is right now, even between particular political parties. I have to tell you, one of the things that has been a very big learning observation is how one one particular party, they have stuck together despite how wrong things are. And another political party that have basically gone at each other and all are fighting for the right things have become so uh, kind of lost, as if it's lost Mm -hmm. its way, that in order, Mm -hmm. if you really believe we've got to come together and get the country together, what can we all talk about and and begin to believe in so that we can move 2020 towards, I don't know, some sort of a balanced leadership, a balanced leadership. That's what we need now more than ever. So any final sharings that you'd like to offer us? And thank you so much for joining us on air. To be quite honest, I wish I could just have a one-on-one chit-chat with you for like an hour or two over a nice (laughs) chai and really talk about what we're going to do to keep changing the world because we need to get, I mean, every bit of energy has got to be ready, loaded, and fired up to really make the world a better place. You know my phone. You know my phone number. You can call me anytime <laughs> if you have ideas, and uh, yeah. and I'm always down for that level of conversation and engagement. What I would say to your leader, to your listeners right now, is never underestimate their own power to make a difference in this world. That now is the time more than ever to talk to their children, their family, and their communities about what's happening in the world, what's happening in our nation and that to get out and vote and not to allow, like I said before, the fatigue to discourage them from engagement, that this is a very important time. It's also a very deeply spiritual time because as dark as our world seems right now is as light as it is. And ordinary people are doing extraordinary things, and I'm excited and hopeful, and I want to see everybody really engaging in a way that we never have before. Because if we can, especially those of us in the transformational community, that puts mm-hmm. love before anything else, peace is inevitable. And I want to be on that side of history. So I hope the listeners recognize that this is an exciting and important and hopeful time, but it requires community and it requires accountability and engagement. Beautiful. Sean Corn, thank you so much. Lots, lots of love and continued success. Thank you very much, Sister Jenna. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I look forward to the next time. Same here. Definitely. Take care. Bye-bye. Just love her work and her passion and her light. So everyone, please get a copy of her book, Uh, Revolution of the Soul, Awakened to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. And see, you can actually do yoga, meditate, be spiritual, and vote. Come on. (laughs) You hear that? You could do yoga, meditate, be spiritual, and vote 2020 let's see who we really want to have in office and see what's the kind of leadership that we're looking for within our own lives and work it out and work it out again you know everyone's got good in them doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on but really what are the important policies and issues that you think would be fundamentally important not only for you the current times that we're in but also for the future hope you've enjoyed our conversation today remember No one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same, so let's do that. I'll end our show with Snatam Kaur. Ade, Sai, Ade. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.